Hello, this is Rosemary Lally, the editor of CII. Most of you know me from the Governance Alert newsletter that CII publishes each Thursday. Today, I'm talking with Julian Hammond, Senior Director of Executive Compensation, Compensation Research for Glass-Lewis. The pandemic forced many U.S. public companies to dramatically change the way they conduct business. It also may have altered just how critically shareholders are evaluating the executive compensation plans at those companies. After the 2021 proxy season, headlines were rife with stories about investors pushing back against overly generous CEO pay packages and compensation that did not align with lagging corporate performance. Today, Julian is going to shed some light on this situation for us. Welcome, Julian, and thanks for taking the time to talk to me. So, Julian, could you please provide us with a snapshot of how say-on-pay proposals at Russell 3000 companies actually fared during the 2021 proxy season? You know, we were a little bit surprised ourselves because I thought there was going to be um, a lot more of a groundswell of shareholder opposition because of some of the things we saw going into the year and through the year. But for the most part, the the vast majority of U.S. companies had fairly good years in terms of stay on pay. Average support hovered around 90%, just like in previous years. Uh, The number of failed companies um, did not increase significantly. And overall, investors seemed fairly comfortable with a wide range of the maneuvers that boards undertook to manage pay programs and the related risks in the current context that we're all that we're all weathering. On the other hand, um, there were some differences in sort of the characteristics of what we saw. So on, on the other hand, again, we saw twice as many S&P 500 companies fail um, year to date as compared with last year. When you take that alongside the fact that the total number of failed proposals increased only slightly, what you're seeing is a lot of concentration of this shareholder opposition at the, at the larger end of the size spectrum, um, which is unusual for a, for a couple of reasons. Okay, so, so looking at the longer term along what you just said, um, the voting data, data over the past four years shows average support for, say, on pay proposals dipping slight, just slightly each year. But by contrast, we saw all these headlines this past proxy season that told a different story of more dramatic pushback on executive pay. Um, why, why is this the case? Why did we see all these headlines? Yeah, so I would focus on two main factors that can sort of summarize um, sort of the, the perception that I think you and I share on this. Um, so first, there's the question of who, and then there's the question of, wait, how much? Um, the companies that failed their say on pay were, again, were very high profile. These are S&P 500 firms, again, for the, in, in large part, um, and it grabbed a lot of headlines, but not just in the business section or, or in industry publications. The second is that, you know, there's an element of sticker shock here as well. Um, while a lot of, of, you know, CEO pay on average is about $16 million in the U.S. for, for blue chip firms, but we were seeing pay packages in the hundreds of million dollars, in some cases, even in the billions. Um, and, and that raised a lot of eyebrows. Now, for some of the companies that failed, you know, they did not get close to those levels. Starbucks, for example, um, was, was, still very much, was still very much in the eight figures in terms of uh, total CEO pay. Um, but those same currents of too much is too much uh, certainly applied here. When you put those two factors together, though, in the context of a pandemic, you see big names, 
big payouts and a backdrop of layoffs, pause dividends, and, and frankly, many companies in survival mode. It makes for very for very good headlines and very compelling voting rationales. And and why do you think that um, so many of the rejections and low votes on Sam Pay occurred at the the high profile companies? Um, was it because the pay packages were a lot larger, or was it what? What do you think was behind all that? So, obviously, I'm going to caveat my response and say I'm I'm not somebody who's making all of the voting decisions. I can't speak for all investors, but but a couple of things have really stood out from from recent conversations and from just waiting as the dust settles. Um, one of the likely drivers is is that combination of poor practices and careful attention. Um, we identified a common theme among failed S and P 500 companies of what we would generally we consider to be very generous granting practices. At the same time, these are also the companies that face the most scrutiny and get the most attention from investors. There was one pa- paper published this year by Peter Ilyev and others that highlighted not only that there is a positive impact from investor attention on governance practices, but that the attention is somewhat concentrated on those larger firms. You already have a high baseline of, of attention and you know scrutiny of what these companies are doing, but I think because of the headline, because of those headlines, because of the the activist campaigns, um, it makes sense that the investor focus on larger firms' actions is going to identify and really hone in on those large awards and the other kind of practices that where where there were divergent outcomes between executive wealth and and how shareholders were doing over the course of a, a very rocky year. The other the other explanation um, is that for a lot of the larger companies, they're already held to a higher standard on pay practices and, and frankly, governance broadly. That bar is higher because the benchmarks and the comparables are higher as well. We see a lot less problematic pay practices, a lot more mature and, and well-considered pay programs within the S&P 500, even if CEO pay is higher. But, and so as a result, when there is a perception of backsliding um, and, you know, your peer comparison group still has stronger, has a strong, has strong governance profile or where there is strong governance structures that seem to be um, breaking down even without, without pay declining as well, investors are much more likely to respond negatively um, when the expectation is for stronger performance and, and, and better behavior, frankly. Interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. Thanks. Um, how did the pandemic factor into Glass Lewis's evaluations of executive pay plans this past proxy season? And will any of those considerations carry forward into the next proxy season? Um, understanding how companies adjusted their pay programs and practices for COVID-19 and, you know, in light of the market disruption for March and April took up a considerable amount of time over the last 12 months for us. Identifying clear market norms um, was was a little bit of a fraught exercise because we had scattered information at different paces, um, and so it was very hard to kind of pin down that moving target. But more to the point, no two companies really had the exact same circumstances, even in the same industry. So it was never an option for us to develop some cut and dry scorecard. But because these were big changes um, and big, and in some cases again, big dollar values, uh, we really had to make sure we had a had a way to respond to it. We spent a lot of time in the fall of 2020 developing a framework for assessing company responses to the pandemic that focused on, one, ensuring that incentives for executives and shareholders stayed aligned, and two, that compromises 
um, or deviations from the pay program, you know, the structure that shareholders in many cases had already voted on favorably, uh, included some concessions from the executive and were not completely one-sided. Overall, we're, we're very happy with how this approach um, played out during the proxy season. And, and surprisingly, our against recommendation rate was down slightly compared to prior years and flat for large companies specifically. And in my mind, and you know, with, with, in hindsight, this is because a lot of the companies we reviewed really were thoughtful and considerate in how they made adjustments to executive pay and took balanced approaches. Obviously, there were a lot of outliers and companies that you know, pushed the envelope in one way or another. Um, but I think it's unfair to say board across the country um, you know, threw caution to the wind and tried to, to pad executive bonuses. During the normal proxy seasons, what are four major red flags that prompt Glass-Lewis to recommend votes against say-on-pay proposals? You know, I, I really do like that phrasing because, you know, we've had some, we have some people ask if there are silver bullet issues. And, and the reality is that I, there are very good reasons for going against the grain. Um, but you're right. There are red flag issues that always are going to get a thorough investigation from us. Um, one, large special grants with poor structures. Either of those factors on their own is definitely gonna, is going to take some extra time to evaluate, but when we see the two together, it raises real concerns in terms of cost and, and in some cases, retention. Um, I would point to Helmet Aerospace and BlackBerry as two companies that saw a goal met in the very short run um, as markets rallied. In BlackBerry's case, there's also a cautionary tale about the potential impact of the so-called volatility, volatility around so-called meme stocks uh, for goals tied to short trading windows. Now, at risk of sounding cynical, it should be very rare and very difficult to earn a special award as an executive without the company and shareholders doing well over the mid to long term periods. And a poor structure is going to make that outcome much more likely as we as we as we examine them. Second, padding performance goals by moving goalposts is a huge is a huge red flag. Um, but again, this is also something we made some special countenance for in the context of COVID nineteen. It is normally very rare, you know, happening at maybe two to three percentage of companies we cover, but almost a quarter of the companies we evaluated during the 2021 proxy season exercised some upward discretion in the incentive programs. It was also a factor in a lot of the blue chip companies that failed their say on pay, including Walgreens and GE. But I think we've also seen a wide range of sort of permutations that those types of adjustments can take. Some companies, you know, were very, very careful to to make those concessions like I talked about. If a quarter was excluded from consideration or if the performance period was truncated, the dollar value of the award was reduced proportionally. Um, other cases, you know, like Walgreens and GE sort of took more of a mulligan approach where there wasn't the same um, kind of the same type of reductions or concessions on the executive side. But as a general rule, where the story behind changes around upward discretion or the end results seem wildly out of line with reality, um, it's very likely that we're going to be issuing negative recommendations. Third, we've seen a, some, something of a trend of companies adopting poor pay practices, but only when they're the most relevant. A lot of companies have held for years, for example, that they do not offer excise tax growth steps for excessive golden parachute payments. But we've had a few cases of them being offered to executives only when the merger is actually being contemplated. This is problematic because it keeps the governance profile clean when shareholders would be engaging with the company, but then adds millions of dollars of new and, in my view, unproductive costs where the rubber actually meets the road. Um, we had a couple of 
companies this previous season kind of continue this trend, um, and, and it was something that we did not view very, favor very favorably. Lastly, um, not responding to shareholders after receiving below average support is a huge issue for us. Um, one out of seven Glassless recommendations during this past season was based at least in part on boards dragging their feet to engage with shareholders um, and address what we considered and, and the market considered to be substantive issues. Engagement has gone from something of a rarity to a clear expectation in the U.S. market. And as we see it, neglecting your shareholders when they speak up in large numbers is a major problem. Interesting. Makes sense. Um, so in what kinds of circumstances does Glass-Lewis take it to the next level and not only recommend a vote against the say-on-pay plan, but also against members of the company's compensation committee? So speaking of not responding to shareholders, um, <laughs> uh, I'd say there's, there's three main cases where, where those escalated votes on the compensation committee happen. But just to be clear, the, the bar for that is very high. Um, and it's not a step we take or a position we advocate for um, without, a lot of, without a lot of consideration for the overall mix of factors. The most common case, though, for recommending against a board member relates to persistent unaddressed concerns with the pay program. Boards that are not responsive to low support or failed stay on pay votes are much more likely to receive negative recommendations from us in addition to opposition to the stay on pay. As we see it, you know, boards are supposed to represent shareholders. And we, when we see a clear disjoint between that responsibility and shareholders' voices, it's clear that the stay on pay vote may not be enough. Now, um, so second, there's a rare case where actions that the board takes will break with previous commitments. You know, a uh, company's board says they will not grant special awards for a certain period of time, and then they granted awards, you know, within that window. That can lead to, to negative recommendations against the board as well. Um, because, again, the, the context, the disclosure, and the specific issue can matter a lot, matter a lot for those. But we really don't like to see a break with explicit commitments that were made to shareholders, um, especially because there's that clear responsibility between folks who issued the commitment in the first place and then those that actually took the decision to, to kind of go against their work. Lastly, there, there's a practical case for those withhold recommendations. One of the benefits of Sayante is that it, the vote creates a separate forum for dealing with compensation issues and for investors to speak their minds on. Now, in serious cases where we would vote against the say on pay, but a company has declined for one reason or another to put a say on pay vote on the ballot, we don't always have much choice but to escalate to, to members of the compensation committee. Um, and this was something that happened with Palantir, among others, this year. So Glass-Lewis has generally expressed concern about compensation plans at companies where say on pay proposals have received less than 80% of the votes cast. Shouldn't year-over-year year change factor in? For, for example, a one-year drop from 98% to 85% at a company could indicate something is awry, even if the tally is still above the 80% threshold. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, support in the mid to low 80s can definitely indicate that there was that something, something what did happen. Um, but the way we approach it is sort of twofold in this book. We, also, we expect sort of that that norm for engagement and more comprehensive investor relations mean that when there is a drop like that, companies will be working to address, uh, will be working to address or at least understand the issue. And if we see them repeated, um, we may sort of focus in on it on its own terms. That said, though, because of sort of that expectation, we try to give companies a little bit more 
uh, room to maneuver where we really shine a spotlight on those issues and highlight, you know, it, that's an issue of, of a lack of responsiveness. I think companies also are, are less likely to disclose the extent of their engagement efforts when there are sort of um, relatively minor kind of drops in support. Um, and so, you know, it, it's hard for us to make that case with, with less information than we might get in when it's a clear-cut case. That said, though, you know, we focus on that 80% bright line because there are few enough firms that fall below that line, and they are significantly far enough, significantly far from the norm. And so, after you know a lot of a lot of internal and external consultation, we've determined that at that point, it's fair to expect a more material response and more material disclosure of the fact. But I think one key term to emphasize um, is, is that we focus on disinterested support. This is an advisory vote, after all, and so support from the broader shareholder base is the most important thing to consider. Insiders like the CEO might own significant amounts of company stock and can still vote on their own pay. Um, but this, and this is an issue becoming even more acute with the growth of super voting stock that have multiple votes per share. Um, as a result, you know, if it seems like the disinterested support level is falling below that 80% threshold, um, we're going to be investigating it as a, as a low support case, even if the headline number where you just tally the actual vote uh, seems a lot higher. That makes sense. Um, so going forward, pressure, as you know, has been building to begin factoring ESG considerations into evaluations of executive pay plans. Um, what do you see as the positives and negatives of this potential change? You know, I think this is probably the most exciting uh, development in the compensation world right now. And if it's done right, ESG considerations can encourage companies to manage material risks or significant impacts that might not affect share price or bottom line if the company gets lucky. Uh, but as I like to say what gets managed gets managed and hoping to get lucky is not a strategy for management at all. <laughs> Part of the opposition to those goals is that ESG risks uh, is that some some part of the opposition to ESG goals is that some folks say that those risks are already baked into share price. So, you know, it's double counting with the value of equity awards and things like that. I personally disagree with that view because there is a serious information asymmetry on issues including human capital management and safety-related risk factors between investors and companies. And beyond that, the risk landscape can change very, very quickly as we've seen with issues, for example, of gender and, and broader diversity within Silicon Valley firms. Between those reputational and legal risks, a little proactivity can go a long way uh, in, terms of managing, in terms of managing ESG and, and being mindful of the material issues. Now, the main downsides that we've heard companies discuss um, relate to the fact that this is an area where boards and executives, in many cases, have relatively less experience. Investors want to see demonstrably challenging goals and not a greenwashed cushion on CEO bonuses. And where ESG goals are sort of rushed through or implemented in a way that's not well thought out, um, it's really difficult to see them as anything other than just a, 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 feather, a feather in the cap, so to speak, or a, an additional kind of uh, cushion or floor for the bonus. That problem is surmountable. Um, but it does mean there are additional transaction costs in terms of time and, you know, in some case, expert opinions, and making sure that goals are understood by all parties, attainable in, when, after they're set, um, and still challenging. 
I'd argue, though, that the costs of not working through those issues, of not considering what ESG factors are material and how to manage the risks that they carry, um, can bear an even higher, can, can force an even higher cost on the company someday. someday. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe not next quarter, but for a lot of these risks, you only need to be unlucky once. Talking about ESG metrics, um, they can be based on inputs such as investment and carbon reduction programs, or they can be based on outputs like hitting predetermined carbon output reduction targets. Do you think Glass-Lewis would be neutral on these two approaches, or do you see Glass-Lewis gravitating toward favoring results-oriented metrics? You know, I, I do love a good chicken and egg dilemma, um, and I think we're looking at sort of both sides of both sides of that equation. Um, which is a better metric for a given company in a given situation depends entirely on their approach to ESG and sustainability. Um, more specifically, it depends on what their line of sight is to different you know, metrics and measures and where they are in the ESG maturity curve. There's also a lot of complexity and a lot of information asymmetry here. So it's very difficult for us to say, clear cut, this is the wrong metric, this is the wrong approach. And so as a result, we don't have a preference between those two types types of, of, of metric orientation. Obviously, if a goal looks completely out of place or it looks so easy to achieve based on you know prior results um, or industry standards that it's, it looks like just that padding we talked about, we might point it out as a concern regardless of which side of the fence it falls on. To zoom out a little bit though, we're also wary of penalizing companies for not including formal weighted ESG metrics because when there is an issue, we have a direct line of responsibility to the board for the actual pay outcomes. Uh, I, I, one example that came up recently was Goldman Sachs where their decision to claw back bonuses in the wake of the 1MDB scandal and its implications on firm governance was a great example of how a material ESG factor was reflected in pay, even without a line item in the bonus scorecard. Conversely, though, if they had done nothing, investors could conceivably have targeted board members for failing to take action there. I think overall, though, the, the inclusion of an appropriate ESG metric is a good signal of companies commitments to understanding those issues. Um, and, you know, the, and because it's a financial commitment and in some cases a penalty, it has a lot more gravity um, than, than just reporting or just, in, or just announcing that type of, of dedication. And again, regardless of whether it, is, um, it, whether it is process or input oriented. But because there's a lot of institutional growth that needs to happen in some cases, and in, in many cases quickly, um, the flexibility, I think we try to offer a lot of flexibility that allows for incremental approaches. Goals that are measurable and easily translated to dollars can be a great gateway, in my view, for allowing companies to start or move towards more robust ESG reporting investment frameworks. Um, energy savings or the carbon reduction um, programs you mentioned, for example, can be quantified. They can be measured net of cost, and that can help you get employees and management aligned with the value proposition of ESG, even if your personal views on shareholder value come more from Milton Friedman than Elizabeth Warren. Well, thank you so much for sharing your insights on SAN Bay and compensation issues more broadly with us today, Julian. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. 
The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.